All right. How is it going, everyone? I hope your mornings, nights, afternoons are growing fantastic. And I welcome you to another episode of Forward Thinking, where we talk to founders about their companies, their visions for the future, and how the two collide. And today, we have the CEO and co-founder of Air Garage with us, Jonathan Barkle. Hey, Jonathan, how's it going? It's going well, Matt. How are you? It's going pretty well. It's, uh, it was a beautiful day in San Francisco. It was raining almost the whole day. And I thoroughly, it doesn't rain much in Phoenix, you know, as you know. So I, I actually enjoy every rainy day that we can get here in San Fran. <laughs> yeah, having been here for a couple months, though, I'm getting a little tired of doing it. I wish it was sunny like it was in Phoenix here sometimes. Yeah, is it? I mean, I, I've been here for a month now. Uh, and for, for those listening on the podcast, uh, I, generally, I live in Phoenix, but I'm in San Francisco for three months for an accelerator. So, so I'm here for a few months and I'm leaving. Um, but Jonathan moved here. When did you move to San Francisco, Jonathan? So we moved last August. So it's been about six months now. So, I mean, the interesting thing was we moved from Phoenix, right? And, you know, in Phoenix in August is about 115 degrees and sunny all the time. We moved to San Francisco and it turns out that like July and August are just the coldest and foggiest months in San Francisco. So that was quite the shock to move here and have that. But the big advantage besides the weather, obviously, is just the people that you'll meet here and just everyone is thinking about the future, thinking about how to build products, that kind of stuff. And that's that's the amazing thing. So it's worth putting up with the the less than ideal weather. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can imagine... Uh, as, as time goes on, the weather becomes a little bit of a drag. But as you said, people stay for the people, right? The, the, the people that are here are all startup people. There's investors, there's founders, and there's people just like you starting companies. So I'm curious, um, for people that don't know who are listening to the podcast, tell us a little bit about Air Garage. Yeah, so Air Garage, we are a parking operator. So we work with you know, people that own parking lots, own real estate that's sitting unused, and we help them to rent out their parking spaces to drivers. So in doing so, we basically operate the parking lot entirely. So we handle the advertisement, the payment, the enforcement, the operations of the parking lot. So we're able to provide kind of like a, you know, passive income stream. So you can think of it kind of like people will compare it to Airbnb in that we're renting out unused space, but it's more like if Airbnb, like, listed your house, but then also like came to your house and ran it as a hotel for you. Cause we actually do just everything for you to run your parking lot. All right. That is, that's an awesome idea for a company and it's not your average, at least from my perspective. Um, when I, when I talk to founders, either on the podcast or just, just anytime, um, it's not very often I hear that they're working on, on becoming the best parking operating software or company. So tell me, how did you, how did you get into the parking space? And, and yeah, give us a little bit of idea of how you got into this. Yeah, so I mean, it really it, it bred from a personal need on our part when we were going to school at Arizona State University. Um, so we really were just tired of paying the outrageous prices for parking on campus. It was something like, you know, eight or $900 a year to buy a parking pass. And, you know, we were walking around the neighborhoods and just saw like, okay, there's a, there's a ton of parking spaces just sitting here in people's driveways. So we knocked on some people's doors. We said, hey, can I rent your parking space? And eventually after we knocked on about 12 doors, someone said, sure, like I don't use my driveway, you know, pay me $100 and you can rent it for the year. So we were like, okay, like $100 for a parking spot for the year, that's a steal. So we, naturally we bragged about it to like all of our friends and our friends started telling people and they were all like, we want to do this too, but we don't want to walk around and, you know, knock on people's doors all day. So like, how can we do this without having to you know, go door to door? So we built out a driveway marketplace, a peer to peer rental site, 
and it kind of just grew from there. So it was a super cool product. Everyone liked it. People still use it. It just didn't make a ton of money. So we started talking to, you know, parking lot owners and really figuring out, you know, there's a lot of people that own parking lots where there's, you know, 50 or 75 spaces as opposed to one space in your driveway. And they want to rent them out. They want to, you know, be able to make money on it. They know it's an asset that's sitting there and can be monetized. They just don't have the time and energy to do that. So that's kind of where we shifted into what we do now, which is more like full stack parking management instead of like renting out people's driveways. Yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's fantastic. <laughs> I, I mean, I don't, I don't think we mentioned it on the podcast, but um, Jonathan and I actually know each other from um, uh, just from back in Phoenix. And the first time that I heard about Air Garage, uh, I thought it was a great idea. Um, and uh, um, it started buzzing a lot around campus. And then when I actually got to meet Jonathan and, and his co-founder, Scott, um, it's just it, what they're building is like this coolest piece of technology for one of the most boring industries, which is parking, which means it's such an opportunity here, in my opinion. So I, th I think it's awesome. Uh, one, uh, one more question for you on that. When you first started, give us a little bit of a timeline. When did you first start, get the first idea for Air Garage or what, build the first prototype? Um, like what year and month was that? Yeah. So, I mean, I think we originally like rented the parking space from a homeowner just by knocking on their door. That was in like late 2016. So that was, you know, a little over two years ago, but from there, it, you know, it took about six months before we realized, okay, there's really, there's like a platform, a marketplace that could be built here. Um, and, you know, we're going to school at this time. So we weren't really focused on it. It was kind of just a hatching of an idea. And then kind of over that early 2017 timeframe, uh, we built out the basic framework of website. And then um, during the summer of 2017, I basically spent the entire summer just going door to door in the 110 degree heat and knocking on people's doors and saying like, hey, you know, we're launching this platform. You can rent out your driveway. It's for students that want to get parking affordably. Like, are you interested? So it's, it's been a little bit about over two years since we really started working on the parking problem. But of course, it's evolved a lot since then over the last few years as we've, you know, talked to different customers, figured out different ways of accessing supply and kind of adapted the platform over time. Yeah, well, I guess the last question on Air Garage specifically. So you said your the idea and the product has changed over time. Can you give us an idea of of not just the product, but what is your what's your vision when you when you first started Air Garage? What were you looking to do in the long term, and kind of how has that changed to right now? And, and the last question is, um, if someone was to ask you right now, as I am, what's your vision for Air Garage and the future of parking? Uh, what would you say? Yeah, I mean, so when we started Air Garage, it was really more about, you know, there's these like spaces in our cities that they're just kind of sitting empty, like a lot of the time and they're sitting unused. And, you know, we started looking into it and it turns out like there's about eight parking spots for every single car in the United States, which is just a mind boggling number, right? So there's just eight parking spots for every single car just sitting there empty. So one in eight parking spots all the time is just empty and, or is full, sorry. Um, and the seven out of the eight others are just sitting empty because there's that many parking spaces in America, which is crazy. And so really at the, at the beginning, it was more about like, how do we make this a bigger solution for parking? But what it's become over time is this realization that, you know, this, these parking spaces represent more than a parking space. They're not just a place to put a car. They're a like building block in our cities and within our cities, you know, like 35% of the land in an average American city is dedicated to parking. And so, we're really more of a real estate company than most people realize. Most people hear, oh, you're starting a parking company. Like, 
whatever parking is going to die in the next five to 10 years. But at the end of the day, what we're trying to build is a real estate company where we realize that this 35% of our land in the cities that is currently being used for parking is going to be, you know, a great asset as we move forward and as we move away from driving cars so much that we can repurpose that asset and rethink how are we going to build these cities? How are we going to use these spaces that were traditionally used to store, you know, pieces of metal that carry us around that are two tons? Um, and how can we use those to support, you know, autonomous vehicles, electric cars, scooters? How can we, you know, build out like cloud kitchens in these spaces? So really our goal is, you know, we're a real estate company and our first product happens to be parking. So we're going to be monetizing these spaces as parking spaces. But over time, as we build relationships with the people that own the land, right, is we're going to be the first person that they, that they turn to in five to 10 years when they realize, you know, we don't really use this for parking very much anymore. What else can we do with this? And we're going to say, you know, here's all these use cases that we've built out. And we think based on the demand in your area, you could, you know, be hosting this land as a storage space for the community or, you know, maybe a community garden or something like that, right? So it's much more about, how do we address the fact that there's a lot of underutilized real estate sitting around being used for parking and try to be ahead of the curve to transform it into something more flexible so that it can like better support our cities as they transform into the future. That's an awesome vision and very uh, compelling. Uh, I, I like it. Uh, in, in terms of the future um, and, and the future of transportation and the future of parking, um, I'd love to transition this conversation a little bit to thinking more about the future. And I'd love to, one, hear your thoughts in general on the future of transportation, self-driving cars, scooters, bikes, what else? And then um, we can start there, but then I'd love to unpack some other, uh, anything else about the future that interests you, that, that people are working on today or you'd like people to be working on. But let's start with transportation. You're building a, a real estate company, ultimately, to, to help people uh, with parking spaces, that own parking spaces, utilize them in the next five, 10 years as cars become less popular and these other forms of transportation become more popular. Can you unpack that and tell us what is the future of transportation and what are the vehicles that we're going to be using to get, uh, to be getting around town? Yeah. And so, I mean, the, the biggest thing that I've, of course, everyone's really hyped about right now is autonomous vehicles. Um, and you know, we're really excited for autonomous vehicles as well. I mean, I look forward to the day when you can basically call an Uber and it'll, you know, be, like pennies on the dollar to get you to where you need to go in town and it'll be ultra optimized. And I think the data that they're already building is a huge asset and like already helps us get where we're going. And like, I can't wait for, you know, Uber pool and that kind of thing to expand to places like Phoenix because Uber there is just so expensive. And as soon as you can autonomize everything about Uber in Phoenix, like prices are going to plummet and it's going to make a lot more sense to take Uber everywhere. But so, I mean, the thing that we're looking at is like, you know, what is the time horizon for this shift, right? So it definitely will become more decentralized in terms of like who owns the vehicles and who's using the vehicles. But the question is like, how soon will that happen? And I think everyone's kind of like, we're at the like top of a wave of a hype cycle in terms of like everyone thought that like Waymo was going to be launching their autonomous uh, ride sharing program at the end of last year, but it didn't really come to fruition. And now Waymo's saying, you know, we just don't have enough data to be comfortable with doing this. So I think there's been a bit of a like societal shift in terms of like what comfort level do we need to have with this technology before we're willing to deploy it. And we saw this, you know, firsthand when you and I both still lived in Phoenix, Arizona with the, the Uber crash that unfortunately killed the woman. And, you know, that will continue to happen, of course, as time goes on, just because accidents do happen. But, you know, it, it's a question of like, when will we be comfortable enough as a society to adopt autonomous vehicles in terms of safety 
is it going to be, you know, the rational time would be to say, okay, um, there's 44,000 human deaths caused by car accidents every single year. As soon as we can hit 43,000 deaths caused by autonomous vehicles, we should just flip a switch and everything's autonomous. I think more realistically, it'll take a lot longer than that. And, you know, small fleets in small areas that are relatively controlled will start to go fully autonomous, but we won't really see that full autonomous shift for at least another 10 years, unfortunately, just because of like the societal like concern about deaths and wrongdoing on behalf of the autonomous vehicles. And so like one thing we're really excited about is, you know, before autonomous vehicles are coming, we're seeing a lot of micro mobility trends like bike sharing, scooter sharing, that kind of thing. And how do we support that um, and use that as kind of like a first step towards kind of decentralizing the vehicle infrastructure that we use to get around. Yeah, that's, uh, I, I agree with all of that. It's a, it's a great insight. Um, I, I'm fascinated to know what type of vehicles that we're going to be traveling in um, in, in 10 years. I, I, I personally, well, when, when I first, when I saw my first Lime bike and then saw my, uh, saw the first online, the Lime scooters and, and bird scooters online, I'm like, that, that's interesting. Uh, but then when they finally hit Phoenix, um, I got a whole different type of experience. Um, it was almost a euphoria. Uh, so I'm curious, do you see Lime and Bird and, and, and other companies, and Scoot and other companies like this eating into the interest and, uh, and the market of these self-driving cars? Or do you think they're, they're two separate markets entirely? I think ideally they would be two separate markets, right? So the, the, the scooters would be going for like kind of a shorter hop, skip and a jump kind of thing. I mean, you, you probably have experienced this in Tempe with the scooters, right? Where like, if you're going from, you know, like, uh, you know, Broadway and rural to across campus and you're trying to just go, you know, a couple of minutes away, it's faster if you just grab the scooter that's right next to you, ride it like five minutes and then get there and then jump off the scooter rather than waiting five minutes for an Uber to show up and then riding for, you know, five minutes and then having to get out of the, the Uber and deal with the logistics of that. So ideally, I mean, these autonomous vehicles would really only be used for long haul trips. They would be kind of just ready in the wings for wherever there's going to be demand. And then like the shorter trips are going to be done on these smaller electric micro mobility devices. But the, really the, the issue with the micro mobility and the, the scooters right now is mainly around logistics, right? Like people love these things. And like, I personally love the scooters, right? They're super convenient. I wish we had more of them in San Francisco. It's very frustrating that the San Francisco city government has limited the number of scooters because it basically means that the uh, so-called Peskin ratio is way too high. Um, I think there was some guy on Twitter, um, like his name's like Nick. He defined this thing called the Peskin ratio, which is basically like the number of times out of the total trips that are taken that the like mode that you're trying to take will fail. And if that is too high, then you don't trust it and you'll never take that mode. And like in San Francisco, that's the case because there's just not enough scooters and they always are broken, that kind of thing. So yeah, I mean, I ideally would love to see the scooters taking on kind of a short hop, uh, you know, across like a university campus size area and then like autonomous vehicles being used to get you from like, you know, Mesa to Gilbert, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. We'll see what happens as, uh, as the future unfolds before our eyes. What other, going, going outside of transportation, is there any other happenings in the future or developments uh, for the future that you're interested in, whether it be education, healthcare, government, technology, future of work, et cetera. What else interests you, excites you, and makes you wonder what if? Yeah, I think that the biggest trend that I'm like super excited about over the next 10 to 15 years is just the continuing like of like kind of the decentralization and like 
commoditization that the internet has done, but into like more traditional, like very logistically challenging industries, right? So that's kind of what we're doing with Air Garage, right? It's like we're trying to decentralize parking in that we can open up parking lots that are traditionally not worth it because if you were a traditional operator, like the real estate overhead and the wage overhead just wouldn't be worth it because you wouldn't make your money back. But we, you know, just have a variable cost structure. So no matter how big the parking lot is, no matter where it's at, if we just like have at least a few drivers coming through it, we're still making at least a marginal profit on that, right? So that's the really interesting thing about the internet is it's enabled that decentralization in terms of like who can supply the thing that you're looking for and like commoditization in terms of like making those suppliers very interchangeable. So like if we think about something like education, right? Um, it's going to be really interesting over the next 10 years. Like can we decentralize and commoditize education, right? Because if you can decentralize education, you can get rid of like the high real estate overhead of, you know, having a, a school in a, an area that's, you know, centralized in a community and instead, maybe you can like have small homeschool groups that are like Airbnb for homeschooling and like uh, anybody can start a homeschooling group and they just have the materials. The, the software is all kind of like built into the, the software as a service. And then the students are there, you know, they're, they're learning through this like um, massively open online course. And then the, the facilitator is just in the home to like facilitate, ask the right questions, have like guiding answers when the students are asking questions. So they don't even have to be a material expert, right? And then if you can do that kind of decentralized, so you remove a lot of the administration, a lot of the bureaucracy, a lot of the real estate costs, and then you commoditize so that basically anybody can become a teacher and they're really interchangeable, as interchangeable as Uber drivers, that's going to have a huge impact on the education space. And I think the, you know, most promising country you probably, or most promising companies, sorry, you've probably met as well. Um, I think it's Kelly that founded Prenda. He's basically building this, right, where he started with kind of like code schools that you could start in your living room or in your library. And his really his vision for the end of this is, you know, can we make it so that anybody can become a facilitator for a class so that you can just send your kid to this homeschooled class in your neighbor's house? Or if your neighbor gets bad reviews, then you send it to the person across the street because there's just so many people offering these classes that you can easily swap, swap one for the other. And then, you know, it's crazy. I think in Arizona, like, 30% of the cost of providing education to a student goes to administration and real estate. And like that's 30% that's just not even going to the student. And we could increase the budget that is spent on students by 30% without even increasing taxes or anything like that. Just a reallocation of where we're putting those resources. So like that's just one example. Education is just one example, of course. But like as the internet kind of continues to decentralize and commoditize different industries, it'll be really impactful. Um, and that's the thing that's really exciting. You gotta love the internet and what it's been able uh, be able to do for the world and what it will continue to do for the world. Uh, I want to unpack what you just said a little bit in terms of the future of education. Um, what are some other um, like, like I, so education obviously has been um, before the internet was education before the internet, and then you had companies like YouTube and Udemy come out where people could learn courses and, and skills online. Then there you went a step higher. I guess technically a step lower with sites like Udacity, where there's kind of like this like online, like this online university that was a lot less expensive than than the normal school, um, and then and then and then you have these boot camps like Galvanize and Hack Reactor, and you have like Lambda School. Like I'm curious, like there's all these different elements, and then, I mean then the one you mentioned, Prenda, um, which which is a very interesting model, and I'm, I'm definitely a big fan of Kelly. Do you think? the future of education is going to, the future of it is going to be a model or do you think it's going to be a, a, 
a makeup of all these different types of models that are being created now? Like what in 10 years, what does the future of education look like with all these companies gunning for market share and just uh, kind of gunning for the position to educate the future of America? Yeah, it's an interesting question. And I, I mean, of course, I don't know the answer because I'm no expert in education, but it would be interesting to see like, can someone like Lambda School expand beyond their vertical to, you know, not only do coding boot camps, but can they do, you know, boot camps that, you know, are supporting the future of the, you know, sales profession. So like, you know, most of what we do as founders is a lot of sales, a lot of like outbound, a lot of outreach, trying to make people aware of the product because while it's important to have a good product, it's much more important to have people that are A, aware of your product and B, interested in buying it. Um, and like if Lambda could be popping out salespeople as, you know, proficient in sales and as effective in sales and like at the same rate as they do in engineering, like I think that would have a huge impact on startups in the same way that having these engineers coming out are. But it's, it's a good question of like, can their content kind of map over? So like, or will, you know, someone else have a better kind of, you know, model that works better for these different topics or like liberal arts education or like, you know, more technical like trade schools of like, um, you know, training like plumbers and electricians, that kind of thing. So it'll be interesting to see like, is there going to be like a company that owns a vertical or two of the education sector? Or is it going to be one company figures out the perfect model, the Lambda school model that works really well for engineering and then can they, you know, just adapt it and tweak it a little bit and make it really work for sales and for plumbing and for electricians and that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it seems like one or the other is going to happen, but probably not both. It's either going to be winner take all in the education space. So like someone like Prenda is going to own all of high school or, you know, it's going to be very vertically integrated where, you know, the model that works really well for engineers doesn't work super well for, you know, a salesperson. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with that. I know that, um, out of Y, out of YC, uh, a company that is doing what you just said for sales called flock J is taking a very similar model to Lambda school, but it, applying it to sales. So I think you're, you're, um, the, the super verticalized education system. I, 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 I kind of see that being what it looks like. It's going to be hard for one company to, to have a, uh, to, to kind of take it all and be the school where people learn skills everywhere. I think that would be quite a feat. And that was, if someone did that, like props to them, you know, but it, it might be a little hard. What other, uh, are there any other industries? Like, let's say, let's go into one more, um, one more if, if, if you want to. Are there any other industries that intrigue you, make you ask questions that just excite you uh, heading into the future? Yeah, I mean, I think like the the same model that we're kind of seeing and kind of discussing as far as like a Lambda school or apprentice school, right, can be kind of applied and mapped onto, you know, like something like healthcare, where, you know, if you can really try to commoditize the people that are providing healthcare and, and a lot of bureaucracy and like the problem with insurance right now is what prevents this from working. But I think there are people that are working in this space as far as trying to create almost like smaller versions of hospitals, right? Where they can service a, a, a core type of problem or like a core demographic and like do it really well and do it like just at such quality that like you won't go anywhere else for that specific issue. And that would be really interesting, right? If you could, you know, basically go to like these different like almost pop-up shops, like pop-up hospitals almost in sense that they like, one of them like is going to do like purely like colon cancer issues and one is going to go do like purely like bronchitis and stuff like that. So it's like, can you do the same thing for healthcare or is there some sort of like 
you know, um, economy of scale that's preventing that. And that's why hospitals continue to exist in the form that they do. So I think the really exciting thing is like, how can this, you know, decentralizing and commoditizing like aspect of the internet, how can that be applied to these really legacy industries that really still haven't very much been touched by um, the internet in a lot of ways? I mean, like the internet has obviously taken over, like, like e-commerce is huge. Um, buying things on Amazon is just a massive business. Um, because Amazon managed to decentralize supply and then commoditize supply, of course. Um, and like, there's all these industries that have already been kind of like eaten by software as A16Z says, but like, there's so many like legacy industries. Like, I mean, even parking is a good example that are just like, they're so behind the times, like where the, the most innovative thing happening in the parking industry right now is just still the people that for like 10 years have been trying to convert parking lots from being cash only to taking credit cards. And like, it's, it's mind blowing that that's revolutionary, right? Cause that's, that's like 2008 technology. And like, we're still raving about it in the parking industry in 2019. And like, really nobody's thought beyond like, what do we do beyond accepting credit card payments? Cause that's the most innovative thing that they can manage to like wrap their heads around at this point. So, I mean, as the internet continues to like have an impact on these like legacy industries, that's, that's the most exciting thing. Yeah, I agree with that. It's a, it's a great insight and questions for the future. Um, so cool. So I, I have a couple more questions for you. Um, the first first question is, who do you think the, what is an unassuming future Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, um, Apple type of company that, that is small today that you believe will be um, a, a, a world impacting company in 50 years uh, and one that isn't, isn't obvious to most people yet. Do you, do, do you have a company in mind that you think um, off the top of your head that you think is on the right track to be, to be um, one of these next giants um, that, is, that is in the right industry with the right founders, with the right team, with the right, uh, right product? Yeah. Interesting question. How small are we talking? Cause I mean, like the, the first person that, or the first one that popped in my mind was like, Twilio and SendGrid because they're just like powering so much of the infrastructure of, you know, how companies are communicating with customers. Um, but they're already obviously pretty big. I mean, they're both, or they both were public companies until Twilio just bought SendGrid, right? Um, but it seems like they're just on a trajectory that is basically going to be a fabric of the internet. But I guess at the same time, like they're not really a, a Google, Apple, Amazon, Facebook in terms of like being a consumer product. Yep. That's a great answer. Honestly, it's, um, it's probably like, the most accurate answer that I'll get on the whole podcast. Cause you're right. They're, they're big companies, but in the grand scheme of things, most people haven't heard of them before because they're still very small compared to an Apple, Google, Amazon. Um, that's actually like, I feel like if we look back in 20 years, like you might, you might get a, get a W on this one. That's a, that's a great answer. Nice. I, I can agree with that. <laughs> I think it's a relatively safe answer still though. <laughs> it's like, it's, I mean, they're, they're not small companies by any means. So I, I looked up, Twilio's market cap today is something like 12 billion. So definitely not a, a start right. really. <laughs> so then, so there's your safe bet, which, which I think will come true. Take, take one more risky bet of a, of a startup that you just really believe in, in, in what they're doing. Um, and you think that they're in 20 years, we'll all be looking at them as the, as, as the, 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 one of the big five um, that, that might be a little unassuming to, to people today. Yeah, I mean, I think the people that we're going to look back on that, um, you know, are going to be the ones running these massive companies are the people that are thinking like beyond just software, the people that are thinking like, how do, how do we like use software as a tool? How do we use the internet as a tool? But like in reality, like our, our main business is not software. 
right? Like Air Garage is an example of that. We're like, we're really a parking company, but we just use tech and software. But like something, you know, someone that is like going to look at, okay, um, how do we rethink the way that we live in a city? How do we rethink the way that we interact with the city? And how do we, you know, use technology as like just a ground level assumed tool to like build those interactions from the ground up uh, and like rethink basically the built environment that's around us, right? And there, there are some companies that are working in this space. Um, I think most of them are still like fairly early stage. There's like co-living, co-living companies that are really interesting. I think um, one of the ones is called like Star City. Um, I think they've got some interesting things going for them as far as co-living arrangements that they're experimenting with. Um, and I look forward to seeing more of what they're doing. But then like people thinking even bigger beyond co-living is like the interesting thing. Like how can we like build a city from the ground up? And I mean, there's that one real estate development that's happening like on the west half of Phoenix, supposedly funded by, you know, as people always say in the headlines, they're funded, funded by Bill Gates, but really their goal is to build, you know, a smart city from the ground up. Right. And, you know, it's it's a tech company, sure, but at the like foundational level, sure, they use technology for basically everything. And they're rethinking like how the city government works. They're rethinking how you incentivize companies to move in. They're rethinking everything from the ground up. But technology is just a fundamental building block. It's not the like company itself. It's an interesting perspective. Um, and, and I think another accurate one, 100%. Um, well, cool. So I, I, I have one last question for you, Jonathan. So you are in San Francisco right now building what is going to be the greatest and most technologically advanced parking company in the world and ultimately not just be a parking company, but building a part of the future of real estate, right? And, and you're here actively working on um, Air Garage to do just that. So every day, you wake up every day, and obviously, and you're, uh, you're working towards a better future. You're working towards making Air Garage better um, so it can impact more people. What would you say to people listening to this podcast who don't have that idea yet, or they might have that idea but haven't started it yet, but they, all they know is that they really want to build the future and impact a lot of people in the next decade. What advice would you have for them um, if, if they wanted to do kind of like what you're doing now? Yeah. So, I mean, I, th- I think the, the first most basic advice, and like, I, I think it's, it's fairly cliche um, coming from someone that has done this, but like, um, a lot of people just get hung up on like like decision paralysis and the advice that they need to hear is just like just try something right like it, it's better to try anything and like have it fail than it is to just like not try anything at all and consistently like think about like oh what should the perfect logo be what what, what do i do to get the perfect domain like i think a lot of the potential startup founders that i've talked to that are like oh like how do you do it they're always just concerned with the small details when really really they should be concerned with like how quickly can I fail and learn from this and like iterate and like fail forward, hopefully. So you don't like actually fail and crash and burn. But I mean, for, for people that are like before they've even come up with an idea or anything, I think the biggest thing that you can do is like really just reach out to people that are working in like a legacy industry and like figure out where they have pain points. Right. Cause you know, software and like engineering has solved a lot of like technology industries for people like software engineers. So if you're a software engineer and you're like, I want to build something, you shouldn't try to talk to other software engineers because like they'll already have tried to solve all their own problems. You should talk to someone that runs, you know, like a medium size, uh, like enterprise that, you know, has some sort of issue and figure out, you know, what are your biggest pain points? What are your employees wasting their time doing? Um, what can we do to like make you more efficient? And like, you'll probably find an idea for like at least one, if not like a dozen products, just by talking to a medium sized business owner that's doing, you know, some sort of logistics or industry operations 
Um, and like that could be something that's, you know, replicable and scalable, or it could turn out to just be a one-off project. But either way, you're going to learn a lot about like customer development, founding a company, what it takes to build a product that people actually use, that kind of thing. And that's, that's the most important thing that you can learn. You heard it here first from Jonathan Barkle on the Forward Thinking Podcast. Uh, Jonathan, thank you so much for hopping on. I know we've been wanting to do this for a while, so fine. I'm glad we finally got it done. Um, if, if anyone had any additional questions or wanted to reach out to you, Jonathan, it, what, what's the best social channel or, or way to contact you if someone had a question or two about what you had to say today? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Uh, my DMs are open, I believe. My first name and last name, just at Jonathan Barkle on Twitter. Cool. Well, with that, this episode is a wrap. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to another episode of Forward Thinking Podcast. And I look forward to bringing you another great episode next week. Hope you all have a great day.